Morning, everybody. That is so kind. I was going to be mad at him for just being up here for 12 minutes, and then the, resp- the result was that kind welcome. So, so good. Hey, good morning. I'm Matt. I work with the teenagers here at Grace. How's everybody doing? Want to start off with something fun? Yeah, yeah, you do. <laughs> you guys are here to party. Okay, so let's do it. Let's start off with something fun. We are in the tail end of this summer-long, unlikely heroes sermon series. So I want to start off with a game called Find the Hero. Here's what's going to happen. When I say go, Hope's going to put up uh, an image on the screen. And you all got to try to find the hero. Okay? So you can point, you can shout, you can yell, you can describe where you think the hero is. Here's what I'm listening for. First one, first one. Winner, free coffee in the lobby after church. Okay. Grand prize. Okay. The game is called Find the Hero. On your marks, get set, go. Wah, wah, wah. I heard the groans. Okay, okay, okay. Enough Find the Hero. Okay, here's the deal. Here's how I want to start this morning. You're looking for the hero. What do you look for? You're looking, you're trying to find the hero. What are you looking for? What are you listening for? You know, I know some of you are sitting there saying, Waldo's not a hero. (laughs) You have not tried to manage my five-year-old at the doctor's office in the waiting room for 40 minutes. It's not fun. But when Waldo shows up, he's my hero. (laughs) He truly is my hero in that moment. Okay, you're looking for a hero. What do you look for? What do you listen for? That's the question this morning. Uh, actually, one thing I love about this, this series is that's a question that's kind of threaded throughout every single sermon. It's embedded in the fabric of this unlikely hero's sermon series. What do you look for? What do you listen for when you're looking for a hero? Over the years, I've actually come to recognize a phrase that I've heard from multiple heroes in my life. I've come and I've become convinced that this phrase is actually surefire indicator. That if it comes out of the person's mouth across from you, you are sitting across from a hero. I think this phrase is the stuff heroes are made of. I think this phrase is like hero DNA. The first time I heard this phrase, I was sitting across from one of my heroes. It was a mentor of mine who I had... I've been watching for the past few years. And I don't mean watching like in a creepy way, just like he was 10, 15 years ahead of me and I got my eyes on him like, okay, got something I can learn from you. You know, I'm watching him. I'm observing. How's he living? How's he treating his wife? Right, I'm watching him. So for a few years, I've been watching him. Uh, At the time we were out to dinner, I had lost a bet to him. So he was making me pay. True hero, that guy was making me pay. At the time, I was a youth pastor at a church very much like Grace out in Central Oregon. And this hero of mine was a teacher in the local high school. And for a few years, I worked with him. I I had a part-time job in the high school to help pay the bills while I was out there. And I got to observe him in his element, in his role. I got to watch him and notice his interactions with the students, his influence in the lives of the young people, as someone who has this mission to help young people understand who they are and why they're alive, 
the wheels started turning in my head. What would it look like for me to be in a role like that? Day in and day out, having the opportunity to, to really earn the right to speak into the lives of so many kids. And so I began to think, is there, is there a next step for me in, in life? Is there, a, is there a calling for me to, to be a teacher, to, to love kids in that environment? And uh, a few months ago, I had I just let this mentor of mine know that I was processing all of this. And so I was out to dinner with him and he asked me about it. He said, so where, or where are you at with this? And I told him, to be honest, I feel like I can see it. He said, there's something that's getting me fired up. Thinking about living in that world, earning the right on a day in and day out basis with so many kids immersed in their, immersed in their world. So he said to me, so what are you going to do about it? I said, well, I'm praying about it. To which he replied, okay, well, it seems like we're past that. What are you going to do about it? To which I replied, uh, I don't know. It's a little scary. But I told him that Robin and I had actually started looking at a few programs. Most of them were two years master programs. Cost between $35,000-$45,000. And we were in this creative phase, figuring out how we might pay for something like that. And then he said this to me. He said, what if I told you I'd pay for it? I started laughing at him. <laughs> because it's kind of hilarious. And he got frustrated with me. He said, stop laughing at me. He said, Komar, you know my mom just passed. And every time I pray about what to do with what I've inherited, God puts this picture of you and Robin in my head, and I can't get rid of it. He said, I'm serious. Let me know. After some awkward kind of squirming, it's very humbling, some hemming and hawing, I mustered up a, a pretty feeble, that's unbelievable. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. And that's when I heard the phrase for the first time. This phrase that is a surefire indicator of a hero came out of his mouth. He said this, it was never mine to begin with. He said, it was never mine to begin with. This morning, we're listening in on a conversation of one of our unlikely heroes. As he spoke out against a nation that was chosen by God to be a hero nation, but had become something far less. His name was Amos, and he was totally unlikely as a hero, but absolutely a hero. Amos's words and Amos's mouth have been used to fuel social justice movements for over 3,000 years. Words that have been born out of his mouth have influenced world leaders to pursue the dignity of the poor. Elevation of those who are oppressed. Some of Amos' most famous words are known to us because they were quoted by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And so if you've ever heard the words, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You've heard the words of Amos. 
And if you ever stood in front of Amos, if you ever sat across the table from Amos and you had a chance to thank him for those words, if you had a chance to thank him for his mouth that had so many good words come out of it that inspired so many good things, he said, thank you. He would look at you and say, it was never mine to begin with. I'd like to stop and take a moment to pray this morning before we go on. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we acknowledge that this morning is yours. And we ask that the rest of our time together is time spent um, really bringing glory to your name. God, for every single person here, first time, long time, no matter where we are in our faith journey, we ask that we encounter you that we learn something about ourselves and we learn something about who you are. God, may the result be we actually get the chance to fall, fall in love with you because of who you are. Amen. Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 15. The message this morning is born out of this very short passage. Okay. And for those of us who are church people, who would have, say they've been around for a very long time, who would say yes to an answer about faith or belief in Jesus or Christianity, I actually believe this passage contains an incredibly important reminder for us. For those of us who are here this morning and say, I'm not really a churchgoer. I'm investigating. I'm here for my girlfriend. I'm dipping my toe in the water. Whatever the reason may be, but certainly not maybe here because they're sold on any type of God thing. I hope that the reminder that we see in this passage is something that grows your curiosity, particularly as you continue to evaluate who the God of Jesus is. Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 15. We're kind of dropping down in the middle of this, uh, these writings of Amos. And so I think it would be smart for us to take just two minutes and do a little bit of context. So here we go. Here's what you need to know about Amos. Amos' prophesying took place around 750 BC. At that time, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was very very wealthy at this time. In fact, you, scholars say that during this time of history, the northern kingdom of Israel had never been better. They'd never been stronger. They'd never been more influential. They'd never been better. Amos was a shepherd from the southern kingdom of Judah, a tiny town called Tekoa, which was six miles or so outside of Bethlehem. God calls Amos to leave the southern kingdom, to go to the leadership of the northern kingdom, and speak a message to help get the train back on the tracks. If you're convinced that Amos is a hero, this is what makes him an unlikely one. Shepherd from the southern kingdom, set up to the leadership of the northern kingdom. This is like, this is like asking the water boy for the Dallas Cowboys to come up to D.C. and give old John Gruden a message about how to run an offense. Okay. Of course, some of you are thinking, actually, that's not so unlikely. The Cowboys water boy probably does a little, know a little bit more about offense than John Gruden. <laughs> probably. Okay. I'm from Cleveland, so I'm out of this whole. So actually, being from Cleveland, the most appropriate example is like, okay, take the Browns water boy. Send him to New England. Okay. Very unlikely. Okay. Very unlikely. Back to context. 
God calls Amos up to the northern kingdom because God is frustrated with Israel. He's frustrated with the northern kingdom because in their wealth, they lost sight of who they were and they lost sight of their mission. They lost sight of their calling. Our passage this morning begins after Amos has just finished his first major block of speaking to the leadership of the northern kingdom of Israel. And his main message was one of condemnation for Israel's exploitation of the poor. The most poignant quote of his message to the high priest came in chapter two, when Amos, speaking on God's behalf, said of Israel, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge in the house of God. They drink wine taken as fines. So this was the message that Amos brought up to the northern kingdom. Where we're kind of camping out this morning comes in the leadership of the northern kingdom's response to Amos. Amos has pretty much just finished his prophesying. And uh, and the high priest has a chance to respond. And so this is what we're going to read this morning. This is Amos chapter 7, verses 10 through 15. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile, away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And they also took care of some sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Verse 12, Amaziah, don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos in verse 14, you're right. I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me and said to me, go prophesy to my people. One more time. Amaziah, don't prophesy anymore at Bethel to Amos, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. In other words, this temple belongs to us and we are going to do what we want. We are the owners here and we'll be in control of how we run this kingdom. Amaziah's and the northern kingdom of Israel's approach to life, I am an owner. We are owners. It belongs to me. I do what I want with it. Look, this is why God was so frustrated with Israel. God had hopes and hero dreams for Israel, for their nation. He wanted to bless the world through them. And he did bless the world through them. But God was so frustrated because in their wealth, they had decided that the blessings were going to go to them and not through them. 
Amaziah saying, look, it's ours. We're going to do what we want. My mouth, I'm going to say what I want. Our money, we're going to spend it how we want. Then Amos, one more time. You're right. I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. And actually, this is where I kind of wonder. Is Amos, did Amos throw that bit in about sycamore fig trees because he's bragging? Is it like, you know, I was a shepherd, but you should know. In addition, you know, shepherd for a couple years and the boss called and said, hey, I got a new responsibility for you, Amos. Such a good worker. Amos says this in other words. There's nothing that was ever mine to begin with. I don't own a single thing. My entire life is taking care of someone else's stuff. Amos's. Amos's approach to life. I am a steward. Nothing is ever mine to begin with. I do with it what the owner would have me do with it. Question. How does it sit with us to juxtapose these two approaches to life? These two identities. Amaziah's identity as an owner versus Amos's identity as a steward. So when we talk about this, actually all the time downstairs in great student life with our young people. In fact, if you wandered by room 126 during first service, you'd probably hear something along these lines. Okay, everybody, listen, we're going to stop. Before we go on any further, we're going to stop and we're going to take time to pray for our compassion children. We're going to pause everything we're doing and 100% of our focus is going to be lifting these children up before God, bending God's ear, asking God to turn his face toward them. And pray for the children that we sponsor through Compassion International. And then we encourage them in one more way. We say, hey, listen, and just so you know, just to remind you, we have this donation box here. Because sponsorships are $37 a month. And I want to encourage you to remember this donation box. If you ever have a chance to skip Chipotle once a week, you've got an extra 10 bucks in your pocket, Right? But then, but then we go through this little spiel where we say, listen, we're not, we're not bringing this donation box to your attention just for the fun of it, just because for, to guilt you in it, just because we need your money. But here's what we believe. We believe that it's way cooler years from now to be able to look back. And instead of saying, oh yeah, Compassion International, releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name, that was something my youth group used to be a part of. It's way cooler for you years from now to be able to look back and say, Compassion International, releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name, that was something I was a part of. This box is here for you so you can be a part of something really powerful. And in addition, this box is here because it's an opportunity for you to exercise a stewardship approach to life. Because at some point, you are going to have to make a decision. Who are you going to be and, and, and how are you going to go forward? Like, yes, you can decide to adopt this ownership approach to life. It's mine. I'm going to do what I want with it. It's my phone. I'm going to message who I want with it. It's my mouth. I'm going to say what I want with it. It's my body. I can put whatever I want in it. Or you could exercise a stewardship approach to life that says... God, it all belongs to you. Show me how I can get behind what you're passionate about, God. 
Last summer, a group of us traveled to Guatemala to visit the children we sponsored through Compassion International. And I would just say this, if you're new to Grace and you haven't heard us talk about this partnership before, I would take a minute to go online and check it out because it's incredibly powerful. But one of the students who traveled with us is named Robbie, and he's entering into his senior year at Wakefield Senior High. And as you can see, he is a big dude. Can you see that he's a big dude? Is it up? So he's not just large in stature. He's a big deal in a lot of ways. He's a true BMOC. In fact, he's ranked in the top 30 of all basketball players in the state of Virginia. During the state championship game last year, he scored 21 points. State championship game. He's a big deal. So naturally, everybody started calling him Big Rob. Hey, Big Rob. What's up, Big Rob? Big Rob, Big Rob, Big Rob. Anyways, a while back, I was praying for Big Rob. Something really cool happened. During my time of prayer for Big Rob, I became convinced that God wanted me to give Robbie a new name. And I became convinced that God wanted me to explain this new name to him. So the following Sunday, Robbie, Robbie shows up, and after service, I pull him aside. I say, hey, Rob, I got to share something with you. So here's the thing. You, you may love this or hate this, Rob, but take it however you want. But I was praying for you this week, and there's something I felt like God wanted me to tell you. Everyone calls you Big Rob for obvious reasons. You're a beast. You're making some pretty serious moves in, in basketball. Big Rob makes a lot of sense. Here's the deal, though. Big Rob forgets who he is in God's eyes. Big Rob expects people to cater to him. Big Rob assumes a very high view of himself. I believe God wants me to call you Little Rob, which is a little funny. Because Little Rob remembers who he is in God's eyes. Little Rob remembers that it is better to serve than to be served. Big Rob gathers glory to himself. Little Rob redirects all glory to God. Big Rob wants to be an owner of everything. Little Rob remembers that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. So I give him this whole spiel. He sits there a moment, then he gets up, he pats me on the shoulder and says, okay, thanks, Matt, and walks away. <laughs> And I'm sitting there thinking, well, all right. I mean, I wasn't sure what I was expecting anyway. But I didn't think I'd get a pat on the shoulders. Okay, thanks, Matt. Thanks for that pep talk. Go get him, Tiger. But here's the cool thing. Next week, Robbie comes to church and grabs a name tag. He writes Lil Rob on the name tag. It gets even better. That summer, we're in Guatemala, the day this photo was taken. And little Rob was talking about this tournament that his team was traveling to in Jamaica or Antigua or some crazy Caribbean island. So I pipe in and say, hey, you need chaperones. <laughs> team, you need some extra adults on that trip. Give your coach my number. I'm here for him, whatever he needs. Okay. You need someone to do team laundry? I'm good. 
I got, I got you. You need a water boy. I got you. And when I said water boy, Robbie lost it. Something inside triggered something inside of him. He said, water boy, man, that's ridiculous. I'd never be a water boy. And he said, actually, I think his exact words were, that's ridiculous. You never catch me being a water boy. And then he walked away and I felt kind of dumb. I was just making a joke, Robbie, but I actually would be water boy. Um, here's the cool thing. Two minutes later, Robbie comes back to me, kind of unprovoked. And he says, yo, man, what I said about being a water boy, I just realized that's something Big Rob would say. Here's a question for me and for you. And I'll start with me. Is there a big mat that needs to be dealt with? Is there a new mat? A smaller mat that God wants to see come to life? Do I see myself primarily as an owner amassing great quantities of whatever I can amass? Or do I see myself as a steward placed temporarily in charge of a whole lot of things that in the end all belong to God? I'd like to finish our time together talking about Jesus. A story he told and a story he lived. You could argue that they're exactly the same thing. And this last part, I believe, is actually the most important. Because this is where our conversation takes a turn away from behavior, away from how we live or the actions we take, and towards something much closer to the center of Christianity. Because Christianity at its best is about something far deeper than behavior modification, radical generosity, selfless living. Christianity is about God showing up in flesh, his presence given to transform me and how I see myself and restore humanity. Jesus told this story about a landowner. Now just read it. It's in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus said this. He said, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? One thing always struck me about this story Jesus told. What strikes me about this story Jesus told was just how quickly the tenants who were hired to steward the landowner's property decided that it would be, it would be better to own the property. And I actually think that's an incredibly interesting conversation in and of itself. 
how quickly they decided that it would be better to own the property. And I think one of the reasons that this strikes me so quickly is because I noticed this tendency in myself. A couple of months ago, Robin and I went to a concert out at Chiffy Lube Live. We got the lawn seats because we're lawn type of people. <laughs> Who's with me out in the lawn? Bringing the blanket. Oh, people up there in the pavilion. Must be nice. Robin and I, we grab our blanket and we go in and we kind of set up about 20 minutes before the opening band shows up, which tells you we're old. And after about five minutes, huge thunderstorm rolls in. Lightning, thunder, torrential downpour. And actually at that time, uh, because it was still before the opening band was about to come on, the lawn was pretty sparse. So someone comes on the PA and says, hey, we'd like to invite everybody on the lawn to come in under the pavilion. Okay, come on in. Rob and I look at each other like, jackpot. The promised land. We're going into the pavilion. They got the cushy seats in the pavilion. They got the box seats and the, the runners that bring the concessions out for you. So we're there and we're just loving it. We got the cushy seats. I got the tarp wrapped around me. I'm warming up. And we start to feel at home there in the pavilion. We start to feel like we belong there. We make an order with the runner who's running concessions, which, come on, that's pretty interesting. You know, you realize that they're not going to lose money on concessions just because there's a thunderstorm. So we place an order and we wait. And after about 30 minutes, the storm passes. And the person comes back on the PA and says, okay, the storm is sufficiently passed. The band is preparing to take the stage. We'd like everybody to move back to their seats. (laughs) You know what I was thinking. Nope. I like it right here. I'm feeling pretty good right here. I started thinking, how long can I last? How, how far can I take this? What are the chances I'm going to be able to see the concert from this box seat in this cushy chair? After about five more minutes, they come back on a PA. Okay, everybody, the storm has passed. The band is preparing to take the stage. Please return to your seats. Ushers start coming up and down the aisles, you know, checking. And in my head, I'm strategizing. I'm like, how can I work it so I don't have to move? And I start thinking, I'm, and this is it's ridiculous. Like, Matt, just go back out on the lawn. But for whatever reason, I started to believe in my head, I, I belong here, I own this box. I've been here 30 minutes. <laughs> it's my box. Scratch my name under the, I didn't do that. Vandalism. I started thinking, okay, how can I argue, way, argue my way into this? I started thinking, okay, you know what? The person running the concessions hasn't come back with my order yet. You know what? The people who had the tickets for this box, they probably went home when the thunderstorm started. There's no way they're here. I can stay here. You know what? This seat is warmed by my, by my butt and I'm staying here. But then something happened that changed everything for me. I had assumed this false perspective of myself, that I belonged there. I was an owner of this box. I wasn't just a temporary inhabitant. But something happened that changed the way I saw myself in that box. The person with the tickets showed up. (laughs) The owner of the box showed up. And it changed everything for me. In that moment, I saw very clearly. Here's what I realized. I need the owner to show up to remind me that I'm a tenant. 
I need the owner to show up. I need the presence of the owner in my life to remind me that I am a temporary inhabitant. I am someone who has been put in charge of a whole lot of things that in the end aren't really mine. Isn't that a funny thing? How easy it was for me when the true owner was away. How easy it was for me to assume this false view of myself. It's the presence of the owner that confronts my false identity as an owner and brings me to a place where in my spirit I can confess in truth. This was never mine to begin with. This is where my hero potential is maximized. I wonder, what would it look like for us to begin inviting into our lives presence of the owner? We started to ask the owner to show up in new ways. Remind us who we are so that we can say in spirit and in truth, this is never mine to begin with. What would happen? I want to close with one of the best descriptions of Jesus I've ever read. Words that capture so well who Jesus was and what it means for me that Jesus was who he was. His words were written by a first-generation follower of Jesus. His name was the Apostle Paul. He wrote this in a letter to, to a, a first-century church. And he says this about Jesus. He actually is talking about them and their attitudes, but he says their attitude should be that of Jesus Christ, who, though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I think it's appropriate to read it this way, that Jesus, who was in very nature a true owner, did not consider true ownership something to be grasped, but rather made himself a tenant, taking on the nature of a steward. This morning... Jesus is inviting us to participate with him in this movement. He's inviting us to lay down one life, one identity, and allow another to be raised up. And go back to big Rob, little Rob identities. Big Rob who wants to own it all. Little Rob who remembers Psalm 24, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. It's a powerful thing. This, it's a powerful thing when this happens. It's the transformation that takes place when God shows up in our lives. Last week, we had the privilege of celebrating this transformation with another one of our students who, um, I have a picture because I wanted to share this with you so you could celebrate with us. You can have a sense for the way God is showing up in our community of young people and how the perspective that our young people have on themselves is changing. And um, this was Aaron, and he got baptized last week. And, um, you know, he went through this process where God showed up in his life and reminded him who he was. And he said, there was an old Aaron. There was, a, there was a big Aaron that needed to be laid to rest, a big Aaron who wanted to own everything. God said, Aaron, I want you to lay that to rest. I want to raise up a new Aaron, a little Aaron, who acknowledges me and my ownership of all. One of the coolest things that Aaron shared 
uh, right before he climbed into the tank and got dunked was this. This were his last words. He said, time to bury an old Aaron. I share this because I want you to celebrate with us, but I also hope that you'll be able to pray alongside us in new ways. And one of the things I'm asking you to do is pray this. Pray that in Aaron's life, at some point in Aaron's life, he has the privilege of saying to someone who he has blessed, it was never mine to begin with. I'm gonna close with words uh, that I actually just robbed from the new edition of Common Prayer. So I thought they fit and they were really powerful. And then a prayer. These words were written in the early Christian writing known as the, the letter to Diognetus. And the author is actually unknown. But it says this, Christians live in their own countries, but only as guests and aliens. They take part in everything as citizens and endure everything as aliens. They are poor as beggars, and yet they make many rich. They lack everything, and yet they have everything in abundance. They are dishonored, and yet they have their glory in this very dishonor. They are abused, yet they bless. In a word, what the soul is in the body, Christians are in the world. Will you pray with me? Dear God, form us into a peculiar people who live differently because we have been transformed by you. God, we ask that over the course of this next season of life, many of us will be able to remark that we have sensed your nearness, we've encountered you, that you have shown up in our lives and it's, it's rocked our worlds and it's changed everything about the way we see ourselves and we see our lives. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.